It's now my honor to turn in God's word to Joel chapter 2 as we return to our study of that book. We come to Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Lord willing, next week we'll be concentrating on verse 32 once again. We'll, We'll talk about it a little bit today. But this is, as I'll say in the sermon, uh, the, the pivotal, the turning point passage of this book. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy word as he inspired it and gave it to the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May we pray. Lord, we do pray that even as you have given this word, that you might enlighten each one of us by it, that as it is exposited here this morning, as it is applied, that each one of us might see ways to apply its teachings to our own lives and to our knowledge of you, that we might be growing in our knowledge and thereby in our love of our Lord and Savior, and be more conformed to Christ's image, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's passage is, as I said in the first sermon in this series, and as I mentioned before reading it, uh, the pivotal passage for the book of Joel. It is the turning point. As we'll see, the, the things spoken about up to this point are part of, of old Testament history, but the uh, uh, things that we see in the third chapter are uh, things that come especially with the first coming of Christ and in the age until uh, his second coming. This passage is so obviously important that Hebrew texts set it apart as its own chapter. And it's a little odd to me that, that as Christians we haven't noticed this and it wasn't set apart historically as its own chapter. As we'll see, these verses we read today speak really of the present age. So what we see uh, in the previous passages happened before Joel's time or there was a time there, there was we saw in in chapter 2, things that were yet to come, but they were going to happen in what we would consider to be Old Testament history. And the focus of what comes after this passage is more what is to come at the Day of Judgment. So, 
This is where we're going to start. We're going to deal with the question of timing this morning. And we're going to examine Joel 2, 28 through 32 in regard to these things. One, timing. Two, the events predicted. What is it actually saying? So we'll see when they happen, what is going to happen. And then third, Joel's exhortation to his hearers and readers in light of what he's predicting. So first, let's consider the timing of what Joel is predicting here. Notice a couple of key words about timing in this passage. In verse 28, we see the word afterward. Well, of course, that should make us ask, after what? Well, of course, looking at the immediate context here in Joel, uh, it becomes clear that it's after what Joel has just been talking about. He predicted an invasion by a foreign army, to be followed by a time of restoration of the land if the people would repent. Such a restoration, we know, did happen historically in the days of King Hezekiah. So if we understand Joel is predicting events that happened uh, up to Hezekiah's reign, uh, we would see that this might be talking here, the passage just previous to this one, about the time when the Lord drove the Assyrians away after they had invaded the kingdom of Judah. It could also be said of the period following the Babylonian exile, which is in part what many people think this scripture is talking about. Certainly verse 1 of chapter 3 suggests we have to consider the end of the Babylonian exile as part of the events which Joel is concerned with here. As he says, for behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. So that seems to indicate that that the time period might involve the time from the end of the Babylonian captivity even to the final judgment day. But I think Hezekiah's time probably uh, fits best for what we see in chapter 2 leading up to the passage we just read this morning. As that language of return uh, from Captivity uh, doesn't enter into the, the thought process here until after talking here about the pouring of the Spirit. Though it's fair to say that we might be dealing with what some uh, Bible scholars have called historic recapitulation. That sometimes the predictions of prophets in the scriptures come true more than once. Uh, think about how God promised David a son to sit on his throne who would build a house for the Lord. Well, Solomon sat on David's throne and he literally built a temple for God in Jerusalem. And yet we find that the ultimate fulfillment of that is really in Jesus Christ, who sits on David's throne not for a mere human lifetime, but the promise in that passage in 2 Samuel 7 is that he'll sit on David's throne forever. And so David, or rather Jesus, is the one who sits on David's throne forever. And he builds a house for the Lord, not a physical temple, but the church. But nevertheless, we see here that if we consider 2 Chronicles 32, verses 22 and 23, that uh, the passage of or the time of prosperity following the invasion would certainly fit with Hezekiah's day. As we read there in 2 Chronicles 32, Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, 
and from the hand of all others and guided them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. That's certainly a time of of joy and prosperity for the kingdom of Judah after this great difficulty. So this passage is concerned, the passage we're dealing with today here, Joel 2.28-32, is concerned with what happens sometime after that. Also then notice in verse 31, we see that it's before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So there's our bookends, there's our time frame. And we've noted previously that the day of the Lord refers to times of judgment. Uh, the judgment coming upon Judah with this invasion was called the day of the Lord and described as great and very terrible in Joel 2.11. And the awesome in verse 28, or, or rather verse 31, is the same Hebrew word that's translated as terrible in verse 11. However, again, we see that Joel is talking about something that happens after that great and terrible day of that invasion and the restoration that would follow it, but before another great and terrible or great and awesome day of the Lord. And as we'll see in chapter 3, this great and awesome day of the Lord that he's talking about here will involve the judgment of all the nations. In Matthew 25 31 and 32, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And so we're talking here, I believe, about Christ's second coming, Judgment Day, the final day of of judgment, the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so we see the time period in question here begins sometime after that restoration predicted in chapter 2 and before Christ's return. In Acts 2, verse 17, instead of quoting Joel's afterward from verse 28, Peter narrows the time frame by saying, in the last days. Now often differences between the Hebrew texts that we have, that we translate our Old Testaments from, and, and their quotes in the New Testament, oftentimes those differences can be explained by the fact that the New Testament authors are quoting the Septuagint, the ancient translation of the Old Testament into Greek. However, that's not the case when Peter slightly alters the wording of Joel 2.28. Rather, we see that under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Peter was narrowing the scope, giving us more revelation here about what time period is being talked about here. He's teaching that the period in question was the last days. And in the New Testament, we see that the, uh, the expression, and similar expressions to it, like last days, mean the entire period from Christ's first coming to his return. People get really obsessed of whether we're living in the last days or not. And as a minister, I've been asked that for 20 plus years now. People ask me, do you think we're living in the last days? And I will say, well, according to scripture, we are, and we have been ever since Jesus first came. 
For example, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. 1 Peter 1.20, he, Jesus, indeed was foreordained before the foundations of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. 1 John 2.18, little children, it is the last hour, 2,000 years ago. So the timing of events predicted in the passage is the present age. That will be further supported as we look at what is predicted here. So let's look at our second consideration here. What is Joel predicting? We can see verses 28 and 29 fulfilled just by reading the book of Acts. You want to see verses 28 and 29? When are they fulfilled? Read the book of Acts, and that's when it's fulfilled. In Acts 2.16, before quoting this passage from Joel, Peter says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. What is the this that he's referring to? Well, we just read it earlier. It was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church such that believers were able to speak in tongues unknown to them, but which were understood by the people who were in their audience. That was the first element of the fulfillment of Joel 2, 28-32. Look at verses 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. We'll come back to the all flesh here shortly, but notice first that the sons and the daughters, the descendants of Joel's original audience, would prophesy. And there that was happening in Acts chapter 2. They would speak forth the word of God. Acts 2 verses 7 through 11, as we read earlier. The Holy Spirit is making the first Christians speak in tongues. The scripture says, of the witnesses, then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, so those are people from what we would consider Iran today. Those dwelling in Mesopotamia, so Iraq and Syria. Judea and Cappadocia, Cappadocia would be in modern-day Turkey. Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, all of those were in modern-day Turkey. Egypt and Libya, North Africa, adjoining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, so people who had converted to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they're speaking forth the word of God, that's prophesying. Acts eleven twenty eight. then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Dream dreams. Acts 16.9 And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. See visions. 
Acts 10, 11 through 16, Peter saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. The book of Acts and the New Testament epistles all are full of God speaking through the apostles. That's prophesying. So the descendants of the people of Judah would receive these extraordinary signs and gifts. And they did. That was the promise and it was fulfilled. But so would, Joel said, all flesh. As God says in Joel 2.28, that doesn't mean that every last person will receive these gifts, but it does mean that people beyond the Jewish people, in other words, Gentiles, would also receive such gifts. Acts 10 verses 1 through 3, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming, coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And the angel tells him basically to go send for Peter. <coughs> so verses 28 and 29 were fulfilled in the apostolic era already. Well, what about verse 30? And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Well, this is the kind of thing predicted by Jesus in Mark 13, for example. Mark 13, 24 and 25. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Of these things, Jesus says in Mark 13, 30, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. We don't have time now to get into all the details there, but uh, you can listen to my sermons from Mark on Sermon Audio if you want to find my understanding of what was going on there. But this is a poetic expression, this is poetic language, for the destruction of cities and downfall of civilizations. Jesus applies this kind of language to the destruction of Jerusalem that was to come in A.D. 70. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke were certainly seen then. What about verse 31? The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Again, this is the kind of language that we see symbolizes destruction of cities and civilizations in Scripture, but literally, the sun was darkened by the smoke of the destruction of Jerusalem. Not to mention that people reported some pretty weird goings-on in terms of what they saw in the sky in those days. And of course, such smoke makes the moon appear blood-red. If you 
ever seen the rising full moon when there have been wildfires around. But this verse is quoted in Revelation 6.12 also. Now, some believe Revelation is actually talking about Jerusalem's destruction, but uh, most understand it to be uh, predicting the end of this era, the end of this age, right before the return of Christ. So verse 31 is likely part of Jerusalem's destruction, or can be pointing to Jerusalem's destruction, but also a picture of what will come at the end of the age. So those are the events that Joel predicts in this passage. Judgment, but also preceded by the Holy Spirit being poured out on God's people. So third, then, what is Joel's exhortation to his hearers and readers in light of this promise? Well, we find that in verse 32, Joel makes his exhortation. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnants whom the Lord shall call. Now, as I said, we'll plan next week to dig more into verse 32 and see what it's talking about. But Joel is encouraging people there to call on the name of the Lord. The covenant name of God, Yahweh, is used there. Now, as we'll see next week, uh, Lord willing, this is not some pedantic insistence that a person has to pronounce God's name right in order to be saved. In our day, there is something known as a sacred name movement. Uh, people get really uptight if you say Jesus instead of Yeshua, which is his the, probably the more accurate Hebrew pronunciation of his name, or if you say Lord instead of Yahweh or whatever their preferred way of pronouncing the name of God happens to be. The Bible teaches no such thing, which frankly treats God's name, I think, as, as magic, as if you have to say it right, and then you'll get the blessing. But certainly we should respect God's revelation to us. We should respect God enough to call him what he wants to be called. But in the Bible, we find quite the opposite of the sacred name teaching. The New Testament consistently translates the name Yahweh as kurios in Greek, Lord. And the Hebrew name Yeshua is translated into the Greek as Yesu, from which we get Jesus in English. Lord willing, though, we'll see next week that to call on the name of the Lord really means to have faith in Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in Jesus shall be saved. For, Joel says, in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance. Now, Jerusalem, of course, was on Mount Zion. So you might ask, well, why is he talking about it like this? This, uh, this is a repetition for emphasis, not, not talking about two different places. This is one place. But what makes Jerusalem or Mount Zion so special? Well, Psalm 2, verse 6 says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. That's where God's anointed king reigns from. From 1 Kings eleven thirty six, And to Solomon's son, I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So it's where God puts his name. 
It's where his temple, his dwelling place on earth is. Psalm 76.2, in Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place is in Zion. Joel 3.17, as we'll see. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Well, what is Zion? What is God's dwelling place in this age? In 2 Corinthians 6.16, we see you, Paul says to Christians, you are the temple of the living God. The church, not a physical edifice on earth, but the people of God. God's people are his dwelling place. God's people is his dwelling place. Jesus delivered his people from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion, just as was promised here. He was tried there. He suffered there. He died there. He rose again there. So certainly from the literal physical Mount Zion, salvation has come. And from his dwelling place, the church, he continues to grant deliverance to all who call on his name as the church fulfills the Great Commission and carries the word of Christ to all the nations. Prior to AD 70, following Jesus' instructions when they saw the signs that the city would be destroyed that Jesus had predicted, when they saw the signs of the city's coming destruction, the Christians actually left Jerusalem. They were delivered in that way from that destruction. Similarly, but in a far more profound way, all who have faith in Christ are going to be delivered in that great and awesome day of the Lord when His judgment will come on all the nations. As the Lord has said, among the remnant whom He calls, He will call a remnant from out of fallen mankind. They will be the ones who call upon His name. And they will be delivered from the great and awesome day of the Lord. Salvation comes for all who call on God in true faith. Salvation comes for all whom God calls into Christ's church. So we've seen this passage predicts the present age. The events include those recorded in the book of Acts and the apostolic epistles. They also include the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and they include the final judgment yet to come. So the very age in which we live. Joel's exhortation is therefore to be saved by calling on the name of the Lord. So what's God's exhortation then for us living in this last age? Number one, trust his word. Trust God's word. He has fulfilled it in the past. We can see ways in which this scripture was fulfilled from the apostolic age onward. He'll continue fulfilling his word in the future. Number two, look to his historic doings. Look to history to see how God has been faithful. Third, call on the name of the Lord. As we'll see next week in more detail, that means trust in Jesus Christ. Call upon Christ in faith. And fourth, remember that deliverance comes from Christ through his church as we share the gospel with the world. As we preach the gospel, his people are saved. Ambrose of Milan, the 
great ancient church father, wrote from this passage, or about this passage in Joel, Return then to the church, those of you who have wickedly separated yourselves, for he promises forgiveness to all who are converted. May we pray. Lord, grant that we may trust your word all the more as we look to the past and see how you have fulfilled it. Let us call on your name in the present and look to the future in confidence of the ongoing ministry of deliverance through your church by the power of your Holy Spirit whom you have poured out upon it. For we pray in the name of Jesus, the King and Head of that church. Amen.